such a joy to be able to gather around God's Word this morning. If you've got your Bibles, take them and open them to John chapter number 7. Yesterday, my wife and I were privileged to be with um, her family. Actually, my whole family, not just the two of us. We didn't leave the kids home. Start again. Yesterday, my family was privileged to be with uh, some of Ashley's family in the mountains of North Carolina. There it is. Thank you, Martha. Up in, around Sugar Grove, and it was just such a lovely time. Such a godly heritage in this family. Um, it just makes you grateful, super grateful. We opened with a quick announcement, and then we all sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And then an independent Baptist preacher who is part of the family, but... Only about four of you in the room may know what I mean when I say he sounds like he can't talk without sounding like an independent man. Brother, I just want to... I mean, he's got that kind of... He's ready for camp meeting in a moment. and He led us in prayer and just wove the gospel so beautifully into the prayer and calling people to Jesus. It was a wonderful time. I don't have any heritage in my life on my family's side of any family gathering like that. And every family gathering with the Lawrences kind of goes that way. And so... For those of you who have godly parents, godly grandparents, godly brother, sister, mama, you better be thankful. You know, you, you ought to thank God as much as they get on your nerves sometimes, and they know they're weird. You don't have to tell them. They get it. We're all okay being the right kind of weird, though. You know? This world is the world that's headed the wrong way. We're, we're, we're headed the right way. Be thankful. Take a moment and just uh, thank the Lord for that. One of the joys of parenting is seeing your children grow in knowledge and understanding. And one of the best ways that kids grow in that area is by asking questions. And you think about it, questions are awesome at times. You parents can think back to some seasons of questions in your life, regardless of what stage of parenting you're at this morning. And, and some of your questions some of your children's questions were so innocent. I mean, completely innocent and just cute as all get out. Some of them are so insightful. There were times as a parent, you did this and said, hmm, out of the mouth of babes, right? Because your kid asked some question about the Lord. And you're like, oh, praise the Lord. The next Billy Graham, whatever, whoever, like they ask a great question. There are other times that your kids ask questions and you wonder if their head's screwed on at all. And... There's some doozies that come and you wonder what, where, in the, what planet, like, or they ask you a question that you've answered 13 times that day. None of my kids, I'm not throwing any of my kids under the bus this morning, but I've heard these things happen. <laughs> one of my favorite questions from one of our kids early on was, we adults have a tendency to just say normal things conversationally and a kid has to process and find places for these words. And when one of our children said, mom, What's a speaking of which? A what? A speaking of which? What are you saying? Well, you and Dad always say speaking of which. What's a speaking of which? <laughs> awesome question, right? You don't have to be a parent this morning to have probably heard some pretty great questions. Maybe you've sat in Sunday school class, small group, been at work, and somebody asked a question like, that's a good question. John's gospel is, is set up, and you could actually place a lot of John's gospel under a series of questions. Chapter 7 has quite a few uh, cr- crammed in. It plays out with multiple questions. Last week, 
we started the thought, Jesus is perfect in every way, and we talked about God's timing and his authority and just, you know, really pressed in on that. If you missed last week, I'm not saying the sermon's great. I'm saying the, the message from the text is worth listening to. It, it, was, uh, it was convicting for me. I, I tell you, one of the things, and I wrote the sentence, and I'm still trying to live it out. I, I act more like an unbeliever than not when I'm constantly questioning and frustrated about God's sense of timing. Like his unbelieving brothers were like, you're going to do this now. It's like, no, I don't, I don't play by your rules. I'm indebted to the creative insight of so many gifted writers and, and researchers that have unearthed some beautiful things from the text and the languages and things. And, and I was heading down a track for the rest of John 7, and it's always cool when you find out you're heading down a track that others have plowed before. So you're not like coming up with something crazy and new. That's, that's a good thing as a preacher. Um, um, I, I want to start this morning, though, kind of in a strange way. I'm going to break some homiletic rules. I want to start with the end in view. If you'll look with me at verse 44 in chapter 7. It wasn't read this morning. But chapter 7, John 7, 44. The Bible says, So there was a division among the people over him. Read it again in whatever version you've got in your hands. And then just look at it on the screen. Read it to yourself silently. There was a division among the people over him. That, that's where we're headed this morning in the text, to a division. It's painful to see because we know the end of the story. We know that Christ will be crucified for the sins of the world, will pay the sin debt of all of humanity that will come and put their faith and trust in him and freely invite anyone who will, whosoever will, to, to surrender to him as Lord and Savior. And yet there's a division in this stage of the game. Jesus said in Luke 12, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. What does that mean? Let him answer it himself. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The question then comes, did Jesus come to break up families? No, but he did come to build an eternal family, and that causes division. Some will count the cost and recognize that Christ is worth it. Some will say no thanks and think somehow by their passive rejection of Jesus that somehow eternity will play out in their favor because they weren't really ugly about it. Others are completely ugly about it and do everything they can to dismantle and attack Christ in every way. And still, again, some count the cost and know that he's worth it. When Emperor Valens sent messengers to Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, they were trying to lure him into heresy so that they could kill him. He sent some workers there to bait him, and Eusebius responds with, Alas, sirs, these speeches are fit to catch children, but we, who are taught and nourished by the sacred scriptures, are ready to suffer a thousand deaths rather than to permit one tittle of the scriptures to be altered. Wow. 
Then the emperor threatened, listen to this, to take by force all of his goods, to torture him, to banish him, and even to kill him. How did he respond? Ugh. No. Here's how he responds. He needs no fear of confiscation, who has nothing to lose, nor banishment, to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death when that's the only way to set him free from sin and sorrow. Wow. Jesus Christ still today is extending the invitation to those that will follow him and trust him and believe him and it causes division. In church pews, in homes, there's division. That's where we're headed this morning. Buckle up. There's some questions asked in John chapter number seven. I want to recap some of those that we've already seen and just kind of reframe what we covered in the question and answer and then unpack today's. We're going to get to an incredible question. I promise you the question we're getting to is so awesome. It comes toward the end of our text this morning and it's amazing. It's so good. That's the best tease I can give you. Let's start at the beginning though. Um, the first question that popped up in the first part of John 7 was, where is Jesus? Remember, the brothers that were unbelieving said, hey, we're going up. You need to go up. If you're going to make your ministry known, you've got to blow it up in front of everybody. And Jesus says, it's not my time. Leave me alone. You go do your thing that you want to do. I'm on the Father's time. He gets there, and the religious rulers there at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem say, where's Jesus? There was a lot of murmuring about him, but... Nobody said anything out loud because they were afraid of these rulers asking where Jesus was. Second question came to us in the next section of the text. Where did he learn all this stuff? How does Jesus understand any of this? He didn't go to rabbinical school like the rest of us. What's up with that? He wasn't a part of the traditional path to rabbinical authority. Remember in Mark chapter number one, a few years ago, when uh, you as a church body were working through Mark, right up in the front of Mark, and many of you remember it just from your Bible reading, in Mark 1, the Bible says, verse 22, they, the people, were astonished at his, Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Right? So there was a difference in Jesus' teaching. They recognized that. And like, where, does he, where did he learn all this? And he would tell them from the Father. The next question popped up in the next section. We covered this last week. Jesus said, look, I'm standing here preaching and teaching. I didn't follow all of the jot and tittle of your man-made laws, and you're ready to kill me. And somebody's like, who wants to kill you? What are you talking about? Well, he knew who it was. It was the religious rulers. They've already hatched a plot and plotted a scheme to, to undo what he's doing. They think they have that power. But it's a flashback to John chapter number one when the Bible says the true light which give light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And here's a terribly heartbreaking verse. Verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Remarkable. Just remarkable. Who's trying to kill him? His own people. In our text this morning, we're going to see questions asked about Jesus and then questions that come right out of what Jesus is showing. Again, so thankful for God's kindness in our text this morning and study this week. Let's look at the text together and put up verse 25. Pull that up on your Bible or on your app. By the way, you can follow along on our church app. The notes are published there. Um, 
under my, with my little ESV Bible that's got the headers above it, the question comes up, you know, can this be the Christ? Um, and and the, the question that I would ask us to consider that they're really laying out here is, is Jesus really the one? The Jews, they're wondering, is this really the Messiah we've been waiting on? Others who aren't in the Jewish tradition are looking, saying, is this really the answer to what we've been seeking? Is this really the one? John the Baptist later on would say, are you really he or should we look for another? It's a legitimate question. I'm asking you, pastors, ask you to do an incredible thing. And, and, and that's to accept by faith that this is absolute true authority. Now, whether you accept it or not doesn't change the fact that it is. But, but it's a big ask. That's why we need faith as a gift from God to even get there. But I'm asking you to accept that by faith. And then Jesus, here is Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And, and some of you go, is this really it? I mean, there, there seem to be other religions. I love the quote that said, all paths do lead to God, but only one leads to his forgiveness. The rest to judgment. Is Jesus really the one? Let's look at how they describe him in verse 25. They say, look, they describe him as a man. And if you're taking notes, I'm not going to put all the little things I say up this morning, but if you're taking notes, maybe you'd write out on the side, a man, verse 25. They describe him as a man that some people want to kill. You see it in verse 25. It's not the man, this is not the man who they want to kill. He's a man speaking openly in verse 26, while the haters are keeping quiet over to the side. And then I love this, they're like, they, probably because they know he's the real deal. You've got to love that. that. Just that little tiny jab, poke in the eyeball there. Here's a man, and, he, and we think we know where he's from. Now, they get this wrong, but if you look at verse 27, some of the crowd says, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. That's a bit of a, like, that's not intellectually honest, right? They're saying, we, we know this guy's from Galilee. I mean, they were hung up on him being from Galilee. Can any good thing come from Galilee? And Jesus is saying, I'm not trying to hide the fact that I was born in Bethlehem. I've never tried to hide that. But they miss that. You know, sometimes when we get frustrated about things, it's because we've not taken in the whole counsel of God. We've got one part of a verse that we like or one part of something. And I love the parts that promise things, but there's usually responsibility attached to it for us. And, and they're banking on some actual, some tradition here, this some mystical tradition, but, but here's the reality. Jesus didn't hide that. It, it, it's not where we thought the Messiah was going to come from, but, but they were wrong. He was born in Bethlehem. It's, that's known. They also know him, if you look in verse 31, they know him as a miracle worker. They acknowledge that. They say, look, if, if Christ does, if there's another one coming, will, will he do more signs than this one's done? Like, they know him as a miracle worker. Jesus has done a lot of divine things just to simply be another man. So they're wrestling with it. They're like, here's a man. He's saying incredible things. But, I mean, does it match up with all that we think we understand about the Messiah come? But, I mean, when the Messiah comes, is he going to do more than this guy? You can hear them wrestling, trying to, trying to understand what's going on. Verse 28, Jesus responds. I love this. In verse 28, what does he say? He says, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. <laughs> and you know where I come from, right? I'm sure the one's thinking, wait, yeah, that's the problem. You're from Galilee. He's going, no, I'm not. Stop saying that. You know where I come from, but you don't know it all. You don't know the one that sent me. I've not come of my own accord, the rest of 28. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. 
What's he saying? You think you know it all. I do know it all. I know why I'm here. I know who sent me. Verse 30, he acknowledges. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. He's still in charge. God is still in charge of the timetable. They're asking, is this the one? Is Jesus really the one? Now the drama continues to unfold in front of our eyes from the pages of Scripture. The priests and leaders send officers to take him. They dispatch a team. They're like, go get Jesus. Some of you can relate to that. It's time to leave wherever you are. It's time to go home. And you're like, go get your brother. And then that sibling comes back to you empty-handed. And you say what? Where is your brother? I don't know, but they gave me a cookie and lemonade and I got distracted. Whatever it is, right? We're sorry about that. Go get Jesus. Go get him. So now Jesus not only has the same crowd in front of him at the temple, he's got folks, officers that have come to arrest him, and he issues a warning in verses 33 and 34. Look at it with me, please. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Let me say that sentence again, and just I want to see if I can see any of the light bulbs going off from our opening text this morning. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Where I am, you cannot come. MacArthur's writing on this said, when God shuts the door, it's shut. That's a pretty strong warning that he's giving them. It's a reminder that you cannot come to God on your own. You can't just, and the preachers when I came to Jesus would say, you can't just willy-nilly, popping bubble gum, coming down the aisle, think you're going to kind of shake hands with, that's just not how it works. The Bible says in Psalm 95, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God and we are His people. We're the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. Don't harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, listen to God's words, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, this is God, the same John 3.16 God that we know. God saying, therefore, I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me tell you something. When God calls you to follow him, respond. He's not obligated to call you again. 2 Corinthians 6.2 Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That age is still open for us. The saga continues with a misunderstanding. They push back in verses 35 and 36 and say, where is he going? What's he talking about? Is he going away? Is, is he going with the Greeks? Because I hear there's something happening with the Greeks, with the diaspora. Is that, is that what's going to happen there? Is, that, is Jesus going to do a Greek mission? What's going on? Do we need to get our passports? Like they're totally 
They're just, they hear the words, but they don't understand what he's saying. You know what? Some Sunday after Sunday in pews and, and theater seats and, and portable chairs at church plants set up all across this Charlotte region. People hear the words Sunday after Sunday, but they don't understand. Why is that? Because the Bible says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What am I telling you? The same thing Jesus has been saying all throughout this text. I want you to come to me. And if you feel drawn to me, that's the Father working in you to do that. Come. Because you can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. The Holy Spirit at work in our lives pushes us toward Jesus. That's what he does. What's he talking about? Even with all the drama, even with that great warning there, Jesus extends, here it is, one of the most beautiful invitations that he gives that's recorded. The next question, will you come to me? Will you come to me? John 7, verses 37 to 39. It's so, it's just gorgeous. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I mean, how poetic can you be? It's gorgeous. He goes on to even explain what he's saying. He, he exegetes himself there. It's gorgeous. He says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Before this incredible invitation, he warned them that this was not always going to be the case. You need to seek me while you have me in front of you. Come to me now. I'm going away. And where I go, you can't come. And then the Spirit would come and praise God, the invitation is still open, but it's not, it's not one of those things that you can just hear over and over and over and expect to respond on your own. He's calling them to make a decision. He's calling them to receive the free gift of salvation that he offers or to reject the Savior's invitation. He's calling the thirsty to come. He's calling them to himself, not to a system, not to an organization, not to join a club, but to himself. He's calling them to take him in. To drink something is to move it from the outside of you to the inside of you. He doesn't want them to just touch the hem of his garment. He wants to get into them. He's promising a changed heart and life that flows with living water so that they might be nourished and others might see hope. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. What an invitation in John chapter number seven. Now, I'm going to spend a minute here. Now, remember in chapter six where we talked about the callbacks to Moses with the manna from heaven and the, the water being parted and the stone, all those incredible things. So many wonderful callbacks to Moses and the exodus of God's people. Well, here, here in chapter 7 of John, we've got some awesome callbacks to, I've already given you a hint, major tease, back to Isaiah, the prophet. Uh, this passage points us back 
to some things that Isaiah said that are pretty incredible. The final 26 chapters of Isaiah are saturated with the promises of salvation from someone referred to over and over again as a servant. One writer summarized it beautifully, and I couldn't say it better. He said, in chapter 52, we find out the servant is God. In chapter 53, we find out the servant will bring salvation by hanging on a tree, suffering, and dying in the place of sinners. I wonder who he's talking about. In chapter 54, we find out that the, that the death and resurrection of the servant allows God to offer us an eternal covenant of peace and we can live free of fear of judgment. So by the time you get to chapter 55, you understand that God will send his servant, who's also God, to save his people from judgment. And here's Jesus in John 7. Let's do a little comparison here. John 7, 37, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In the Old Testament, the same invitation was extended. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. This invitation to thirsty people is not for those who are standing at a drink machine at the sub shop trying to figure out which Coca-Cola concoction they're going to create. You've been to these places. You talk about unlimited choices. You just get there and you can mash all the little buttons and create something that's undrinkable. It's just remarkable. Like diabetes in a cup. It's amazing. It's, it's remarkable. You get there and you, you're making selections and all these things. And if we're not careful, that's, that's kind of when we think about being thirsty. We're like, well, you know what? I believe I'll have a ginger ale with uh, just two cubes of ice, please. That's my refined soft drink drinking, right? That, that, that's where our mind goes, thirsty. Yeah, I'm all right. Man can go a certain amount of days without liquids. We can go longer without food. We can't go very long without liquid. That's not who he's talking to here. These are people who have no water. You see, the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths, was, was originally celebrated in the desert. And so if you're talking to somebody in the desert who's thirsty, you're talking to a dying man. This is more than just a call back because it's a cool way to wink back to Isaiah the prophet. Jesus is calling the dying to come to life. It's remarkable. Water means life. Last night we got home from our trip to Sugar Grove. I went in to wash my hands and turn the kitchen faucet on and there was nothing. I, let me just run to the end. I've had a shower. It's okay. Like, punch it. But I, I turned the kitchen. There's nothing. I go to the bathroom. Nothing. You know, as a homeowner, you think, okay, so where is water leaking in my house? And what $20,000 bill am I about to get from the water company, right? So I go outside and look. I call the city of Concord like it's 911. I'm like, Concord Communication. I'm like, yes, send the people immediately. We have no water. Now, here's the fun thing about that. Our first concern about water was teeth brushing and showers. Not one of us for one moment thought, we won't get anything to drink. Why? Because we had stuff in the fridge. There's a Publix or within, there's a food line and a Publix. There's all kinds, there's a gas station just a mile down the road. 
Do you ever have a thought of not being able to get to something to drink? That's not our world. I mean, you might work out a little too hard and you put your drink in the wrong cup holder and you got to reach a little extra and you're tired. Oh, oh. oh, I'm so sore, leg day. Right, and that's about it. These are people journeying in the desert, dying. And Jesus is calling back to that. What is, what the, what's the response? Verses 40 and 44, the, the response is division. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. I wonder why they said that. Because he was speaking the word of God. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Uh, you just want to go, get over that. Like your facts are wrong. You're missing the truth because your facts are wrong. Is, is the Christ to come from God? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? I don't, I'm not ever suggesting that Jesus rolled his eyes, but if, if he was aware that this comment was made, surely he went, Is that not where this is going to happen from? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Look at the responses. Some believed and confessed. This is him. This is the Christ. This is whom we've been waiting for. This is who we need. Some rejected him because they had a misunderstanding of Scripture and life. And some rejected him and wanted to kill him. It's the same today. Some of you reject Jesus. Some people rather reject Jesus because they, they just can't fully understand all the things. They want everything to line up in their minds so that they can make perfect sense out of it. If you're waiting on that, i got news for you. That, that day may never come. It's by faith. We receive it by faith. And some reject him and hate him and hate the church as a result. The drama continues in the rest of the chapter this morning. The officers come back empty-handed to the priests, like we talked about, the boy coming back, where is your brother? And the priests do the very thing you expect them to do. Why didn't you bring him with you? Verses 45 through 52. The officers say, you don't understand. Nobody ever spoke like this teacher. Wow. The priest said, you sound like you want to follow him. Nicodemus then inserts himself. We haven't seen him in some time. Now he inserts himself and says, hold up, hold up. We, we can't arrest Jesus without due process. We can't break the law to act like we're fulfilling the law. We can't do our own thing and then pretend that we're doing the right thing. The priest says, you sound like you're with him too. We know what we're doing, but they didn't. But God used what they were doing to accomplish his purpose and plan. Here's the final question that emerges kind of between the lines in the text. Will you believe Jesus? Which crowd are you in? I'm keenly aware. I know it's Grace Covenant Church. I know that I'm in the Gospel of John, and it's been Gospel revealing the whole time. But let me be clear so there's no mistaking. This is purely evangelistic. The invitation is to the dying to come to life this morning. Which crowd are you in? If you won't come to Jesus this morning, why? You know why? Because you don't believe. Because if the Holy Spirit is drawing you this morning, you'll, you'll come to Jesus believing. I believe that. You'll say yes to Jesus. I want you to say yes to Jesus this morning. If you believe that He's God, if you believe He's the only source of life, if you believe that you are dying and in desperate need of the life He has to offer, if you believe that He's gracious and merciful and forgiving, thank God, 
If you believe he's the fulfillment of God's promises and you are thirsty this morning, are you thirsty? Are you drinking from a poisoned well and thinking that's satisfying you? It's not. It's just accelerating your dying process. We're all dying. I know that. But Jesus invites the dying to come to him. The one in the desert with his strength fading, struggling to go on, hears the promise of water and knows that it's his only hope at surviving. Your only hope is Jesus and not just for heaven. Your only hope to live this life in the way God created you to live this life is Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can give you water. Only Jesus can give you life. Look at what Jesus promises. He's not just promising to save your life in the moment. He's promising that if you will come, he'll give you a drink that will satisfy you for eternity. For eternity. Jesus is saying, if you're dying, and we all are, come to me. Not only will I give you life, but I'll put my spirit inside of you so that you will always have life. My spirit inside of you will become a river of unending life. He will do all this for you and more based on the authority of God's word. Isaiah issued the invitation in the Old Testament. Let's look at how it knits together, shall we? Isaiah 55.1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and eat. You have nothing to bring. (laughs) You're contributing nothing to your salvation but your sin. And Christ is inviting you to come, knowing all about you. Come, buy wine and milk without money and price. Verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Old Testament prophet, New Testament Messiah. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then God puts a pen in this thought with the same poetry in Revelation 22. God says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. As Julia's coming this morning, I want to say something to you that's a little uncharacteristic of our normal gatherings on Sunday morning. Don't worry. It's not about to get weird. Public invitations were not invented by evangelists in the last 200 years. They're in the Old Testament all throughout. They're sprinkled throughout the New Testament where the prophet, the apostle, the evangelist, or the shepherd teacher would call for response to the Lord. Today, I'm calling you publicly. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Do you hear his invitation this morning? You'll know if you do. It's as if God is knocking at your heart's door and pulling your heartstrings and saying, you're dying. 
This isn't working. I am what you need. Come to me. Just like Jesus cautioned his hearers in John 7, I want to caution you this morning. Every time he calls and you refuse, your heart gets a little harder. The Bible says that. In, in fact, the word the Bible uses for that is callous. You ever have a callous on your hand, on your feet? You get a callous on your hand somewhere and you can almost pick that thing with a, uh, a pen and not feel it. The nerve endings start to die. You lose that sensitivity. You, you, you know what that's like. Continuing to refuse Christ's call has the same effect on your heart. A time may come when a, an invitation is clearly given and God is calling but you can't hear him. That's why this hour is urgent. If you know this moment that you need Jesus and that God is calling you to himself, I want you to come to Jesus today. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Seize the moment. You've got a room full of cheerleaders in you. If you think, no, I'll do this out there. When the world is stacked against you and you've got a million distractions, you think you're going to do something out there that you won't do in here where the family of God is rooting for you to follow Jesus? Give me a break. What's the Holy Spirit leading you to do this morning? Think about it. If you're without Christ, what do you think he's leading you to do? The Holy Spirit will not lead you to walk out those back doors in rejection or neglect. What's the Holy Spirit leading you to do this morning? If you know Christ, but haven't yet confessed Him as Lord before others, what do you think the Holy Spirit would have you to do? He will not lead you to walk out those back doors and continue to keep it a secret. That's not how this works. And maybe you're here this morning and you know Christ as Savior, but you're living a life that betrays that profession of faith. What do you think the Holy Spirit's leading you to do? He will not lead you to leave the way you came in. The whole purpose, I believe, of a local church is that we together might know, love, and obey Jesus and make disciple-making disciples for His glory. Julia's gonna play for just a moment. I've said it before that I'm here if you want to pray. I know my wife would move in and pray with a lady. There are others here that would pray with you. Maybe you can pray at your seat. You don't have to get up and come anywhere. But I want to tell you this morning, if you want to get out from your seat and make a public profession of faith, you can. If you can't do it at church, I don't know where in the world to tell you to do it. And it's that serious. This text, how could I not extend an invitation when Christ says, if anyone's thirsty, let him not stay, but come. Come to Jesus. Believe on Jesus. She's going to play for just a moment. I'm going to ask the Christians in the room to pray. I don't believe God shoots blanks. And I think he's calling someone to himself this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask you now, to do that deep abiding work. I pray even now for the courage that only your spirit can give in this moment. That someone would say, I'm dying. I need Jesus. I need him more than anything else this world has to offer. Lord, that's you at work in their life even now. Move on hearts as we just take a moment, not dragging anything out, but to open this opportunity in Christ's name. Thank you.
while the singers are coming as we're about to close in a song. Let me tell you what happens week after week, month after month here at Grace. I'll get an email or a text from somebody that God's dealing with from the service on Sunday. We'll meet after service. We'll pray. We'll get together. And then shortly thereafter, somebody makes a bold profession of faith. I'm grateful for that. But I don't ever want you to feel like you've got to wait on something else for that to happen. Today. Now. Even while they're singing. There's folks around you who pray with you. You're not alone, I promise you. Let's stand together and worship the Lord. And sing.